Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Today's guest, Boomer Anderson, is a TEDx speaker, former investment banker turned health hacker. At the age of 30, with a successful career and a highly active lifestyle, Boomer was diagnosed with cardiovascular disease. This unpleasant surprise led him on a journey to self-optimization, covering everything from diet to sleep. Boomer, let's hit a home run on the Better Call Daddy show. Welcome, Boomer. I was listening to you on another podcast, and I heard you say that like your dad was in the financial industry and your mom was in yoga, and how interesting that like they both really inspired your path. Yeah, I've been asked that question, you know, that that sort of question before about the relationship between my mom and my dad. And my mom was actually she was a steel industry veteran, and then all of a sudden found yoga, meditation, and so I had this interesting exposure to. This is back when like the Dalai Lama started publishing books, right? which is an interesting concept in itself. But, you know, I had this exposure to like the art of happiness when I was very young. And then I'd walk in to like my mother sitting in her bedroom and just staring at the wall with her eyes closed. I'm like, what, what's going on here? And she was meditating. And this is before Silicon Valley got a hold of meditating and started making it trendy, right? And so I, I saw all of this and I, I noticed in my own life when it came to testing, you know, subjects, esoteric subjects like calculus. And, you know, I could take my nervous system and do three deep breaths and all of a sudden, I could focus on derivatives and all kinds of other things, right? And then on the flip side of that, I had somewhat of a, you know, he wouldn't call himself a disciplinarian figure, but he was in many ways of the two parents. You had my dad who gave me this beautiful exposure to the financial industry when I was very, very young, probably not intentional. He would come home and he would watch CNBC as most people did. And I was like, oh, flashing lights. Great for a kid with ADHD, right? And you come to find that those things had meaning to them. You know, I, I was a person who liked complex subjects, was fortunate enough that I had two parents that fed interests whenever they saw it in their kids. And so that began a whole deep education aside from the one I was getting in middle school and high school from my parents and other people that they knew in both financial and sort of spiritual industries. How did they excite you about those subjects though? What was interesting, I don't know if they intentionally did this in reflecting, because I I kind of wanted to prepare a little bit for this type of question. In reflecting about their parenting methods, you look at how my parents raised us, and it was almost a, we're going to give you a bunch of things to play with, see which one you like, and then 
we're going to pour some gasoline on the one you like and give you more of that and see which one ultimately ends up sticking. And so when it came to sports, we were never pressured to do any sport. We're always encouraged to try whatever sport we wanted. And from a young age, of course, like being American, the easy to access ones were baseball, soccer, that kind of stuff. And I wasn't good at either one of those. And like you throw a curveball at me. I'm like, okay, fine, yours. But then, you know, growing up in the Northeast, after I left Chicago, I had a lot of exposure to lacrosse. And so throw a lacrosse stick in my hands and I kind of knew what I was doing. Same thing with ice hockey. You know, they saw that I liked those sports and they wanted to enable me to be as good as those sports as I could push myself. And so whenever I expressed interest in something, they would give me their own additional coaching. And when they reached a level where they were no longer comfortable with what they could provide themselves as sort of the immediate coach, they would bring in an outside person. Same thing with finance too. And so my dad worked in operations at a mutual fund. And he knew a lot about finance, obviously, because he was the guy who was doing everything at a mutual fund that nobody wanted to do in the sense that he was running the the parts of the business that it makes the fund run, but it's not sexy at all. And so when he saw that I was interested in, for instance, in this case, stock trading, you know, the first book that I got about finance was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then it became okay, what else do you want to read? And then I I was very quickly reading like macroeconomics textbooks and the intelligent investor at the age of 12. And all of a sudden my dad was like, let's try something out here. You have some savings. Do you want to invest it? And so I bought my first stock at the age of 12. That stock went down 50%, by the way. You know, I bought bought a stock and all of a sudden you kind of get into this. It was right around the, the tech bubble bursting in the early 2000s. You know, I learned a lot and I'm very grateful that that first stock went down so much because when you buy something and it goes up right away, you think you're good. And then when you buy something and it goes down right away, you kind of do a double take as to what you actually know. And there became a point in my dad's knowledge where he realized that I was kind of going outside of what his comfort zone was. And so he would bring in friends. And so we had friends who were in the hedge fund industry and they would come over and they would teach me. And pretty soon by the age of you know, 16, 18, I had a world-class education in finance that, you know, it's kind of funny because if it wasn't for the fact that it was a prerequisite to go to Wall Street, I probably wouldn't have gone to college. But that was how my parents brought us up. It was myself or my brother. They saw we had an interest. And if we continued to express interest in that, they would only feed it more. And so we're really given this leash long enough to hang ourselves with. And my brother and I did a good job with that. I'm like, how did he convince his friends to come over and teach you things? Steak well, dinners or? Uh, yeah, steak dinners, poker games. This kind of goes into a little bit of a family trait. I think I mentioned this to you when we were exchanging messages, but I grew up doing competition barbecue. And so one of the great motivators for some of my dad's friends or these people to come over was like, hey, they got a free meal. And, you know, we were really good at these competitions. We've won state championships. We've won worlds in chicken, that kind of stuff. So it wasn't really that hard to persuade people to come over to the house. That's so interesting. My oldest son too, the one that's into like eating anabolic now and fitness, he's also very into food. And from a young age, like he started liking food prep. 
and watching mm. cooking videos and making things look pretty on the plate that he wanted to eat. I can relate to that a lot. I had a conversation when I was 16 at the New Jersey State Barbecue Championship with a friend of mine who was a, who was a chef on the Food Network, family friend. And we were having this conversation about whether or not I should go to culinary school. And I wanted to go to culinary school. And I also wanted to go into finance because again, like I have varying interests. And then the third interest, of course, is health. He, he told me this story about how, you know, if you go to culinary school, you work really, really hard as a chef. You don't sleep very much. You work weekends. You abandon your friends. You're, you don't see your family. And you'll break up more relationships than you'll make. That sounds and like so, the finance industry too. Exactly, right? So I, I at that moment, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be a chef. And then I went into finance and the exact same thing happened. So it's just, I guess you have two different devils and I chose one. And then of course, there's the third, which is health. And that came in a little bit later. Yeah, let's talk about how that came in. So it's always been there, much like your son in a way. So at the age of 12, I had this great mullet. A mullet is not a great way to have any girl talk to you in high school at all. But at the same time, I was an athlete and I I was beginning to realize that there's this general correlation with being healthy, having muscle and not only getting girls, but being a better athlete. And so went, started going to gym and getting very, very interested in that. And I have this general obsessive tendency in case you couldn't tell. It was with the stock market. It was with health. It was with food. And so I was reading at that time, Men's Health, Flex Magazine, Muscle and Fitness, whatever I can get my hands on to do these workouts. And by the age of 18, I was the strength trainer for my own ice hockey team, which is kind of funny because I was also on the team at that time. And, you know, I had this very interesting experience because as an athlete, I was also getting injured a lot. I had four concussions before the age of 18. I tore my quadriceps. I have broken my wrist four times. And so I was going into the doctor and asking a lot of questions, right? Rather than just saying, okay, that's great. I was asking questions like, why does this happen? Why does that happen? What is this muscle? And so I had a okay grasp of anatomy. But again, I decided at that point, 18, I decided I wanted to go into finance basically. And so I focused on that. But when I got into finance, got to Wall Street and started realizing after the first year where you basically sleep two to four hours a night and try and survive. After that first year, I started realizing that health would actually make me a better banker. And the cool thing about finance is you can actually track your the amount of money and time I spent on my health and then the outcome when it came to my performance in the job. Because finance, my, my performance on my job was quite literally tied to my bonus. So I was able to calculate a return on health every year. And so throughout this time period, 10 years in finance, I became more and more interested in health. It was just something that just built on itself. Initially, it was running, then it became mixed martial arts, because why not? And then mixed martial arts transitioned into CrossFit. And then I took CrossFit too seriously. The thing about being in finance is you're naturally in a high stress environment. And then you add CrossFit, which is also a high stress environment. And it kind of brought me to a place uh, which was not very good. Upon leaving finance, I discovered I had a heart condition. When I was leaving finance, I, I left with the idea of building this mobile app 
for actually business travelers. And because everybody was building an app back then and everybody still is building apps, right? The idea came because I was traveling all the time and very interested in fitness and I wanted to make those people live a healthier lifestyle, but I decided to focus more on my health. And so from there, I ended up looking into the more data-driven side of health and got very into basically omics type sciences, initially through self-discovery and then through various mentors. Um, I could, there's various different sciences which generally end with omics. And so you can think of these as genetics or genomics epigenetics or epigenomics, metabolomics, there's other ones, proteomics, that kind of thing. And so I gravitated towards these because I was very comfortable with large sets of data and they could tell me something about my health that the physician in front of me couldn't. And so I started getting a lot more into that research that eventually evolved into other former colleagues asking me to help them out. And so kind of blossomed from there. That's crazy. I do want to know what it was like, like the behind the scenes of Wall Street. I mean, <laughs> okay. were you partying? Oh, of course. On top um, of, you know, like no uh, sleep and working a zillion hours? Yeah. Yeah. I think the partying was always there. And I think at one point you probably could have called me a functioning alcoholic in many ways, in the sense that 22 fresh out of high school, dumping a kid in Manhattan, you want to taste everything, right? And so you're sleeping two to four hours a night and then Thursday night comes and it's thirsty Thursday, you go meet your friends at the bar on Bleecker Street, blah, 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 right? And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you do the same thing, Sunday, fun day. Then I moved to Singapore when I was 25. At 25, I was given this basically incredible job where I was overseeing around 14 different countries and how various companies within these countries were raising money in the debt capital markets. And so I was flying all around the world. And over the course of four years, I went to 60 different countries, which is incredible. I got to stay in a lot of really cool hotels, eat at a lot of really cool places. And a lot of the stuff I would do outside of the office was partying because why not? I want um, to know about that. I mean, that is crazy. That kind of reminds me of like when I started at Jerry Springer, I was 21. I went from <laughs> zero to 80K in a year. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a small town girl from Kentucky. I'm like, oh, hell yeah. Like I'm yeah. going to move to the Gold Coast. I'm going to take trips to Italy. I'm yeah, going to eat fine foods, all of that. And what was even better was most of the stuff was getting paid for by somebody else, right? Right. So, so with the exception of the partying. And so what was really cool about that job is I was getting flown all around the world and basically entertaining people. And so I'd go out for these dinners and, you know, when I would come back home to Singapore, I'd meet up with my friends and whether it was Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, you would go out and Singapore is a relatively small community. You know, you would know the people that would go out every night. And so we would go out every night until 2, 3 a.m. And you're drinking God knows what at that point. You know, the night would start with really nice cocktails and it would end with whatever the hell they were serving, right? <laughs> and you're just having a lot of, like, it was a great time. It wasn't the healthiest thing in the world. And I think it also contributed a lot towards what I ended up finding out about myself later. You know, you'd end up in not only just Singapore, but anywhere I went, I would have this community of people that I would meet up with. And sometimes you would end up with just three drinks. Sometimes it would be a multiple of that. And whether it's Singapore, Bangkok, Mumbai, Goa, Hong Kong, 
in most of the places in Europe, you would have your destinations wherever you would travel. And it was a lot of what made the job fun. But at the same time, uh, there was instances where I knew that I was kind of numbing myself because I didn't really love what I was doing. It was a fun time. I don't regret any of it, of course. But at the same time, I think there's a lot that that I learned from that experience. Yeah. What, looking back, do you feel like are the biggest lessons that you learned? Well, okay. (laughs) So what you don't want to focus on is usually what you need to focus on, especially when it comes to your health, right? And so there are certain things that I enjoyed focusing on, right? Like I was the CrossFit kid. And so I was doing the movement. I was okay with outside of partying, which by the way, if you look at like calorie counts, the partying was a significant amount of my calories right? But I was very good at following whatever sort of diet that was the diet du jour. I was very good at the movement thing, but I wasn't willing to focus on a lot of the stuff that isn't seen as sexy. So what do I mean by that? Things like sleep. I slept between four and six hours a night from the age of 18 to 30. And I can almost guarantee that that contributed to a lot of what I had to to face when I turned 30. The other thing was stress because talking about stress now is a little bit easier to do, especially as a man. But back then I was banker. I was alpha male, right? Like, fuck, you can't talk about stress. And sorry, I don't know if I can curse here. Oh yeah, um, my but... episodes are explicit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I, I couldn't talk about stress. And so like I was having panic attacks and meetings and I was still unwilling to deal with this stuff because it wasn't sexy to work on stress. And this is despite the fact that my mother was a yoga teacher. Like the warning signs were always there. The signals were always there. Like focus on your breath work, focus on your meditation. And I just kept pushing it to the side, pushing it to the side until you hit a wall. And that wall for me came when at the age of 30, I found out I had a heart condition and it was like, okay, now I need to start facing those devils inside of me that I just don't want to deal with. And that really came in the form of addressing sleep and stress first. So sleep and stress were the devils. So, I mean, of course, there's many devils. I don't know how long we have here, <laughs> but you let's know, talk there's, about the devils. Let's talk. The devils are the interesting parts, right? You know, when it comes to my health journey, the initial part, the most obvious part, when somebody tells you like your heart screwed up, the most obvious part for me, it wasn't the fact that I, I didn't have a cholesterol issue. Like I wasn't the typical heart case. I could run a sub seven minute mile. I had, you know, sub 12% body fat. Like I was not your typical heart case person, but I did not sleep very well. I was sleeping four to six hours a night. I was also changing time zones at least once a week. So Singapore to Jakarta is a one hour time difference. You may think that that's not a big deal, but I was doing that every single week, at least once. Singapore to Mumbai is two and a half hour time difference. That whole half hour thing is just screwy in general, but you know, Singapore to London, six hours. And I was doing Singapore to Europe at least once a month. And so this was my life for a period of five and a half years. So what that is actually called is something called social jet lag. Actually, it is physically jet lag there, but you can do this to yourself socially, by the way. And so I bring up social jet lag because somebody listening to this may say, okay, I don't travel. So this isn't a big deal. But what about somebody who works third shift? Third shift, well, night shift we know is a carcinogen, right? And so, I did if that. You're, yeah. yeah. And so, there's certainly ways you can manage this types of lifestyle. I know, like, I speak to a lot of chefs 
in this world and they have to be a top performer when most people are going to bed. And so there are ways to manage that kind of lifestyle, but I didn't know that at the time. And so for me, my circadian rhythms were completely broken. And then when I was on the same time zone, which maybe was for a max of four days in a row, I was sleeping four to six hours a night. And it took me a couple of years to actually repair those rhythms, right? For the average person listening to this, let's talk about what this could mean for you. So let's say you are the type that is sort of early 20s, early to mid 30s. You go out on the weekend, you have a late night, and that kind of throws you off. So let's say you go to bed normally at 10 p.m. and on the weekend, you go to bed at 1 a.m. And then all of a sudden on Sunday night, you can't sleep. Well, part of the reason for that isn't just the stress that you face for the job. It's because your body was built over the course of eons and eons and eons and has developed these rhythms to run efficiently. And so your biological rhythms help dictate when you go to sleep and when you wake. And so when you throw that rhythm off, it takes a little bit of time to get back into the rhythm. That's why usually by Tuesday, Wednesday, you start to get back into your rhythm. That's the exact same thing as what I was facing as flying on a plane from your body's perspective, at least. And so that's actually called social jet lag. I was facing physical jet lag. And so for those people out there that are saying like, hey, this kid was flying all over the world, not exactly relevant to me. Well, I would just ask, are you going to bed? and waking within the same sort of 30 to 60 minute period every day, because that is something you may want to look into. And that was something I almost refused to look into for a very long time. I don't think most people do look into that. Of course not. I can speak mainly to Americans on this because the data is just more available. You know, most Americans sleep something like less than six hours a night, which is horrible. And it's not really great for your health. And you know, most people are just discovering that, Hey, it's likely that you need a little bit more. What else do you measure? How much time do we have again here, Rena? <laughs> I, I can go. And so there's, um, and I do this, there's the part that I do for myself and with all of the clients that I currently see. And so every six months I'll do three types of tests. Actually, I'll do more than that, but there's three basic ones. One is called metabolomics test. And what I'm doing there is assessing my cellular level health. So how healthy are my cells? And I focus on the cell because if you can get the health of your basic cell, right? That will fractalize out into the health of the rest of you, right? And so you can find out there what kind of vitamins and minerals you need. Maybe there's some heavy metals that are blocking the production of ATP or energy for your body. And so we measure that. Then I look at my gut. And so I actually have uh, right behind this camera, a three-day stool test, which I'm going to start tomorrow. And so I look at the health of my gut microbiome every six months. That's there I'm looking for the presence of parasites. I travel a lot just because I like to see the world, right? Like you, you mentioned your experience with Springer and going over to Italy, right? Like it's really freaking cool to go out there and see the world. I don't want to stop doing it, but I do want to know if there's something in the water, which has happened to me before that I need to get rid of, right? Where did that happen? <laughs> of all places, you know, I've had street food in Delhi, 
right? Like you'd think like classically people think of deli belly and I've never had significant food poisoning in India. I've had food poisoning in India, but not significant. The place where I had the worst case of actually a parasite, which took me forever to get rid of was Patagonia in Chile. And you think about it, like Patagonia is beautiful. Have you been before? No, but I've heard. Get on a plane tomorrow and go. It's like the best place ever. My now wife and I were hiking this trek in Patagonia and I had a bottle with me, right? And I thought, you know, you're in a stream in Patagonia. What can go wrong about drinking the water? Well, I got that wrong. <laughs> um, so I'm surprised. I mean, don't they like bottle water from there? Yeah, you think so, right? Like I, I'm pretty sure that, and this probably is just a freak incident. I'm sure that if I went the next day, it wouldn't have happened, blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying that there's toxic water in Patagonia. It's just, it does help to test these things from time to time because the only way you can know is by testing. And then the third test is actually food sensitivities. And so food sensitivities do change based on your own diet and your own health of your microbiome. So I test those every six months. There's some additional stuff I do for hormones, for instance, because I do travel so much, I am still very focused on my hormones, even though I'm a relatively young guy. As you get older, there's more of a reason to focus on hormones, but I want to be in my prime for as long as possible. And so really focusing on nutrient and hormone balancing is where I tend to put myself as well as my clients as well. What are your thoughts on steroids and hormone replacement therapy? Well, first, let me disclose, I'm not a physician, right? And so you can't take this as medical advice. And so I will, uh, I'll do this from my own perspective, right? I don't have the bias that most people do when they say, oh, it's a steroid. That's a bad thing. Or, you know, in the case of hormone replacement therapy, I do think that there is an additional element that needs to be added to this conversation which requires looking at the body a little bit more as a network and actually looking at yourself a little bit more as a complex system, right? And so what do I mean by that? And I'm not trying to dodge this question at all. I just think there needs to be an added wrinkle to this as to what are the consequences and what are you actually trying to do? So if you are a Mr. Olympia contender and you are willing to sacrifice long-term longevity for short-term gain, and that's what you want, then go for it. And I have no judgments there. But I do think that adding a condition to some of these discussions around hormones and saying, what do balanced hormones look like? What does that actually do to you versus completely replacing a hormone is something that is, is worthwhile. And so um, when I speak to speak to it from my own perspective, I, I look at hormone balancing, not complete replacement. And then I'll also take into account, is it a hormone issue? Like, do I need to use a direct hormone, in which case I could, and I have no biases against that, or is there something in my lifestyle which is getting in the way? An example here would be somebody who has a, a testosterone issue, and they may have, let's say, low free testosterone and high something called sex hormone binding globulin, but they are consuming a lot of refined carbohydrates and they're not lifting weights. Well, from my own perspective, I can change that behavior, which will then help remove that sex hormone binding globulin and increase that free testosterone rather than giving myself the hormone directly. So when I'm going into this conversation, 
I'm asking a lot of questions, right? Because I know from my own perspective, I want to make the best lifestyle choices possible. So I will look at those lifestyle choices and say, are these lifestyle modifications available to me? And for some people, they may not be able to lift that much weight, in which case then it becomes, okay, what's the next step in that path? So rather than me jumping right to testosterone, maybe there's another another step or two in there. Yeah. So speaking of lifting weights, there's a lot of modalities and things that you can do. If you have limited time during your week, which do you think you should focus on, like cardio or lifting? You're going to hate somebody like me because I'm going to always say it depends, right? <laughs> it's just like, so what's the person's goal? It's funny you mentioned this because I was developing a theory of twos here. And I always start with a question of like, how much time does the person have, right? Because if you have 10 minutes, that's one thing. If you have 20 minutes, that's the other. But I need that person to be radically honest with me because not everybody has three hours or whatever bodybuilders have, right? And it's not their prime focus. And so if let's say you just generally want to be healthy, and this is, uh, again, I'm hypothesizing here, and this is theoretical, so somebody can bash me if they want. But if you are generally concerned about longevity, so you want to have muscles because there is a growing phenomenon of something called sarcopenia, which is kind of muscle deterioration over time. And so the theory of twos goes, you know, can you lift weights twice a week? And you can do just push and pull days, or you can do upper body, lower body. That would be great. Let's say that person had four days a week, then you can add in some time on a bike. That could be 20 minutes of something called zone two training. That would be good for just general energy levels as well as endurance. And then if you wanted to add a third layer of twos, you can add some sprint work on that bike too. But that really depends on how much time. Rena, I have people that come to me and they say I have 10 minutes a day. And so you start them on something like there's a device out there called the X3 bar. You can do a, a whole weightlifting workout in 10 minutes a day. The good thing is, is that when people have 10 minutes a day and they truly give you those 10 minutes and they do that exercise, they start to feel better. They start to be more productive. And then they're like, oh, all of a sudden I have 20 minutes a day. What else can I do? Right. And so then you can start to layer in things. Success is addictive. When you found out that you needed to make a lifestyle change at 30, what steps did you start taking? <laughs> Well, uh, most people don't do what I do, which is I jumped out of the plane without a parachute and I just said I would build it on the way down. But I actually found out this. Let's back up and just kind of talk through that whole situation. At the age of 30, I had resigned from banking. I essentially uh, sat down somewhere around 28, 29, looked around me. I uh, had a fairly successful banking career to the point where I was running this desk. And I was looking around at people in the other banks that were doing the same job I was, and they were double my age. And I looked around and said like, Hey, do I want to be doing this for the next 30 years? And the simple answer was no. And so I wanted to go out. And as I mentioned before, try that mobile app. In the process of that resignation, I went and got a physical and I found out that I had cardiovascular issue. And in the process, got shuffled into an angiogram at the age of 30, which is essentially when they stick a wire up your arteries and into your heart. And Did which is something I, it, of course, right? Like, 
Did it hurt? You're awake for this too, by the way. Like, this is crazy. You're like, do I have to? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, can you knock me out for this? You know, at at that time I was a little bit more of a drinker than I am now. I'm like, do you guys have any bourbon? (laughs) Like, give me something. But it was just an interesting experience. And so, you know, you find out that like my heart wasn't in as great a shape as you want as a 30 year old, especially a 30 year old who could run a sub seven minute mile. And you start to kind of look at Again, I'm building out the system. I was trying to piece it together myself because I didn't have a doctor who can give me a straight answer on why I had this. And so at first it was like, okay, what are the classical signs of heart issues? And you start to run through those cholesterol, whatever, right? I checked that box. It didn't really seem like an issue. Okay. Sleep. There was something there. Stress. There was something there. And then I started looking at exercise. I started looking at my environment. I was living in Singapore. I just, we talked a little bit about my partying lifestyle, right? Like there used to be a club in Singapore called Pangea. The bouncer knew me. Like it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I could just walk right in and I never really wanted to get to that state, but that's how it was. <laughs> and so, and so I'm like, that sounds good. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's great. It's a great, when you get to that state in any sort of city, it's a great way to, you know, be able to get into any social event that you want. And, you know, so the first thing that I, I really did was I moved to Amsterdam, you know, I took Which has plenty of opportunity opportunity for partying also of course right so been there what's fun what's funny about that is so you want to imagine that the reaction that you get when you resign from your job in banking and you tell everybody that you're moving to amsterdam what do you think people ask me right did you go to the red light district (laughs) yeah exactly right like hey boomer we we know you have a serious girlfriend is she coming with you and do you have a cannabis problem which i don't do any cannabis. i don't judge anybody who does it's just not my my drug (laughs) and so drug is your drug Oh, that's a whole separate discussion, Um, but we'll get into that after this one. And so, you know, I moved to Amsterdam and I changed my environment and that was the biggest thing that, uh, that happened, right? Because in Singapore, I was fortunate enough that I knew a lot of people in the country. And as a result, my life was very social and I was always going out like every night was a dinner, every weekend was a party and I was always traveling, that kind of stuff, but I completely changed my environment. And so I went from getting four to six hours of sleep a night to now knowing nobody in a new country, except for my, she's been now my wife, but we didn't know anybody in this country. And so I could really double down on the things that I didn't want to address in the first place. And those were stress and sleep. At first it was like throwing darts at a board. Like sometimes you hit it and sometimes you didn't, but after a while you dial it in. And a lot of that came with, you know, tools like quantified self. So the aura ring, whoop, whatever, you know, pick your device, but using those tools to really layer in and accelerate behavior change certainly helped. Whoa. Oh my God. I have so many questions, but also I thought you were going to go into the drugs. (laughs) Yeah. I do want to know that. Of course. That's Amsterdam, right? Like Uh, it's so available. Yeah. What's interesting is, is most people have that perception about Amsterdam. And I would say the city is incredible in many ways. And I'm sure you experience this when you visit it. It's got this sort of, when I say liberal, I mean the classical liberal stance where it's just free and they encourage people to experiment and be free. And one of the things that they have more of a hands-off approach on is the approach to drugs. And so if you wanted to experiment with those things, you can get them anywhere in the world, really, if you want, right? But these things are um, more or less, they're not encouraged, certainly. 
but it people more or less just let it happen. And so when it comes to the whole realm of psychedelics and mental health, I can tell you that the most profound thing I've ever done for that stress component involves psychedelics and use of psychedelics with therapy. I want to hear about that more. Okay. Because I think that uh, I'll probably do that like in my 80s. If you want, that's cool. I mean, my mother's talking about doing it too. So it's just that. So these psychedelics have, of course, within the US, I grew up and I was a dare child, right? Like I, I would go to school and there would be this police officer that would come to my classroom. And it was a part of this program called DARE. And they would tell you that drugs are evil. And to a certain extent, some of them are, and you probably shouldn't use them before a certain age. But if you look at the addiction profiles of psychedelics, classical psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin versus alcohol or cigarettes, it's not even close, right? Alcohol, cigarettes tend to be two of the most addictive substances and harmful substances around. And there's a a research paper in The Lancet about this. But up until really, I think it was Richard Nixon who cracked down on drugs. There was a lot of research going into psychedelics as sort of a form of medicine and therapy. And then Nixon and a few others kind of really, really, really cracked down and maybe even Lyndon B. Johnson around the Vietnam era cracked down on this and prevented a lot of the research from being done. Now through organizations like MAPS and a few others, there's sort of this light being shed around psychedelics for things like PTSD. But also in my case, my stress was predominantly an anxiety-related stress. I was always a forward-looking person, right? Finance industry. And if you're working for Jerry Springer, you may have some experience with this too, right? Like you're always forward-looking and you're always just stressed about what comes in the future. And I had a very, very high amounts of that to the point where I was having panic attacks and not being able to talk. And so when I first came upon these substances, you know, in my twenties, I'd experimented with, you know, some of the stuff with friends at a Steve Aoki concert or something, right. But not very much. And, you know, I came back to it and I was very, very hesitant because I didn't like not being in control. And all of a sudden you're going to give me a substance that's going to knock me out. And so I took it, I took it several times and have used these substances several times to uncover various things about myself and also to go through past issues that may have been hidden. So there's a lot of talk right now in the mental health world about traumas and hidden traumas that things that we may not be necessarily aware of that can be uncovered and and to a certain extent extinguished through the use of therapy, but also fairly quickly in my case, through the use of psychedelic therapy. That's such a different experience versus doing it with a friend and partying. Yeah. I had two experiences, maybe three experiences in my twenties of doing this and going to like a Steve Aoki concert. And you're like, wow, the beat feels so good. Yes. And then all of a sudden you go, uh, like I had another one in Bali because everybody has one in Bali. Right. And then you go and sit on a couch for a couple of hours and you're like in tears and the next day you feel incredible. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, the, the anxieties associated with a certain type of event were no longer there. The speed by which these substances work was very interesting to me. From there, I've kind of embraced the idea of 
microdosing as well as using these therapies. And I'm a big supporter of MAPS as well and what they're doing because PTSD is a huge problem specifically among our veterans, but also other people too. You can, in certain cases, erase PTSD, or at least give them tools by which to deal with the PTSD very, very quickly and very effectively. And so I think this is documented. You can actually, I would refer people to the MAPS website for this because I, I can only speak from my own experience as to what I went through with therapy, but there's active research in this field right now. Do you feel comfortable talking about any of the traumas that you uncovered? Sure. Let's see. I'm trying to think of what's a good example that I can go through relatively quickly. For myself, a lot of my life has been around this idea of control. And it's still something in certain instances, these are still things I'm working on, right? But what these substances have allowed me to see is how much a certain perspective I'd been taking uh, has been impacting my life. I was a very, very rigid person when I was a banker. In fact, you and I would be having this conversation and I would probably be wearing a tie and, you know, giving you some boilerplate answer or whatever, right? Oh my God, Um, do it. (laughs) I'm not sure I can anymore. I was very uh, rigid too. I'm so relating to this. Yeah. I was a workaholic for sure. Yeah. Like I was the classical, like I planned out my promotion, how I was going to get there, the amount of work I needed to do. I would go into the office on the weekends and I would beat myself up if I didn't say one word right when I was in this presentation. And, you know, it got to the point where I tried to control every single situation within that ecosystem. And when you get that rigid, what does it do? Fucking causes so much anxiety, right? Makes you like crazy. It just makes you absolutely crazy. And you're constantly worried about people being like stabbing you in the back and all of this stuff. You know, I developed this productivity system that worked really well for me. And it got to the point where that productivity system was so elaborate that if I hit it, it was great. And I was one of the most productive people on the planet. But when I didn't, well, shit, I couldn't do anything that day. And it was just so, so rigid. Like I was so rigid with all of my routines and everything. And you just, you're kind of like, okay, what is this? And so I remember going into my first experience with DMT and DMT is the active ingredient in ayahuasca. I was doing a version of DMT called Pharmawaska that involves taking certain medications so that you don't have to throw up. So classically ayahuasca, you do the tea and people throw up. I didn't have to do that. Thank God. It also comes <laughs> out the other end too, right? Yeah, exactly. So you didn't, didn't have to throw up. I didn't really have that experience, but I remember my first experience with DMT, I was going through this and, you know, I was just being shown like how the control that I was trying to exert over my life was really not helping me in many ways. And it was just making me more stressed. And from there, I kind of took an approach, which is not quite laissez-faire, so to speak, but it's much more in the, the classical sense, or it's evolving much more into the classical sense of Taoism, right? So going with the flow rather than necessarily trying to control the flow, which is Uh, pretty much what every banker on this planet tries to do, right? Like they're a banker because they want to control the flow. They want to be masters of the universe, which is a complete crock of shit. And so, you know, rather than me going down that path of trying to rigidly control the flow, it was 
more of a, let's see where this flow takes us. But you have a tendency towards wanting to be the master of the universe. Not as much anymore, but there was that for sure. How do you control that? How do you stop that? Like when you're well, starting- you don't control it. it. That's the whole point. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you control it, it's- to, It feeds um, it. Yeah. When I understand. I was un- I'm trying to get in the flow myself yeah. now. I also and want now you to it's... tell the story of how she thought you were gay. <laughs> You dug up a lot on me. My wife and I met in Bali, and this is a separate trip from when I was doing the the substances. Um, we were at a party at the W Hotel that night. It was New Year's Eve. And my brother and I, he had come to visit from the US and we were at a bar called Sea Circus beforehand. Had way too many margaritas. Again, this is back when I was drinking. I don't even can't say I do much more than taste wine anymore. We had a number of different margaritas. We go out on the dance floor. She was there with a couple of friends. He was with his now wife. And so he wasn't out on the dance floor with me, but I was out on the dance floor, you know, putting out the vibes, just doing the, the sort of Will Smith two-step from Hitch by myself. And I happened to be dancing next to a couple of uh, very, very good looking Brazilian dudes. Apparently, I don't remember. And they were both uh, gay. And my wife comes up to, uh, she was dancing with those guys too. And then she comes up to me and asked me if I was gay, which is, if you've ever read Neil Strauss, the game is like his classic opening pickup line, right? Like he, uh, he pretends, you know, he pretends that he's gay. And so uh, she asked me if I was gay and I was like, no. Uh, and then of course, New Year's fireworks go off and, you know, the rest is history. But yeah, it was a great, great way to meet somebody. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to cover? Oh, wow. Well, I feel like you, we covered a lot. In fact, we even went down some experiences that I wasn't even prepared to share. So hopefully people found it useful. You know, what I would say is what I've done over the past, particularly over the past six years since I've left finance is not only discovered a lot about myself, build a framework on how to help other people do it. And actually I was in the process of building one out myself when I met a gentleman by the name of Ted Achikoso, who created this nonprofit, which I'm now a part of called Health Optimization Medicine and Practice. And Health Optimization Medicine and Practice is really, it's a framework by which doctors and practitioners can optimize for health rather than treat disease or learn how to do that. And it's a different conversation. I was talking to somebody earlier from Switzerland and she was like, you know, I have my wealth manager because of course she's from Switzerland, right? <laughs> and and she's like, no, you're basically like my health manager. And I was like, wow, that's a great way to put it. You do need a health manager in many ways. And so I was in the process of trying to build this out myself. I was on this mission to build the operating model for human performance. His framework was the best thing that I've seen. And so, you know, we've put a lot of effort into that nonprofit and developing that education. If that's of interest to people listening to this show, or if you're interested in really finding a practitioner, you can get in touch with us. Again, it's a nonprofit. We're not doing this for anything other than to change the conversation from disease to health. Because if people take not control, but if they start to take actions in their lives today, who knows where it will lead you, but it may help you lead a more energetic life today, which may help you lead a better life tomorrow. You know, if you're interested to learn more about that, you can head on over to homehope.org. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Totally. Is there anything that you want to ask my dad? Actually, this is first a question for you. Why television? 
And then how did your dad influence you getting into television originally? That's a good question and not one that I've been asked. I like it. Also, what's really interesting too, alongside your nonprofit work is the fact that you have interviewed doctors and practitioners from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And creating a podcast is really like a platform that allows for that. Talk about how creating a podcast has kind of changed your life. Yeah. So uh, I mentioned earlier about the heart condition, right? And so the heart condition came about and I was struggling to find resources that wouldn't just shoot me down or charge me a shitload of money for consultations, right? And so you're kind of at a situation where I was sitting here in Amsterdam and I was trying to unpack my own health issue, starting to realize that this is not just my health issue and it's more of an issue that just faces anybody who's in business and not just heart related. It's just sort of how do you perform better while not screwing yourself up over the long term? And when you start, and this is back when podcasting was relatively new-ish. And so I started a podcast because everybody wants to talk. Everybody wants to share information. And the cheapest way to get people to share information is to have a platform. And so I got a platform because it was a really cool way for me to ask the questions that I was curious about. And then I found out that there are more people like me that were very curious about these questions too. And so it grew quite rapidly. And I was very, very proud of it because I didn't put any money into the advertising side of it. It still is quite a passion project. The conversations have evolved over time. Initially, if you go into sort of episodes one through even 150, it was much more of a, there's a lot of health tech in there. There was a lot of, a lot of stuff on sleep, a lot of stuff on stress, but still is very, very health tech biohacking type oriented. And now it's kind of evolving more into where I want it to go, which is I kind of sit at this interesting nexus of business and health and wanted to give people in the business world a opportunity to see what they could be doing better so that they can optimize their health, perform better, both at work and in life in general. I love that. My dad is going to love this conversation too. He was always saying like, if he would go back and do things over, he would like to study like genetics. So I think that this will, this conversation will make him think. For anybody who's listening to this, there's a lot you can do by yourself, but it also helps in terms of your health, like digging into it. It helps to know how to read scientific research. It helps to have good sources, but I'm a huge believer in empowered responsibility and, you know, it it is your health first and foremost. And so we do have to take some element of, of proactivity in that one. So there's a lot of information out there. It's tough to sift through. But if you have the right people in your corner, it can be quite fun too. Well, I'm glad I have the right person in my corner now and send me some links to put in the show notes. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, this has been such a fun conversation. Um, I'm hoping people got a lot out of it. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. His question was, why TV? Well, isn't TV the ultimate platform to express yourself and to be able to have the best confidence? And Rena, it's got a lot of talent and ability, but sometimes like other people, you know, you have to really get used to performing on the stage where you make the stage your oyster. It's really an opportunity to really be a person that's fulfilled Your best potential is where you can show it off to not only yourself, but to the whole world. And isn't that the ultimate platform? 
as you stated even in your cast with Rena, that having a podcast gave you a chance to open up questions that you have, questions of other people, where you have an opportunity to reach out to everyone and anybody that's interested in similar subject matter. We're trying to do the same thing on the Better Call Daddy show, is to be able to give people a chance to have expression honestly and openly, give a candid reaction, and to try to see if we can add to our wisdom rating as well. Isn't it interesting that he started off following in his father's footsteps? This is really the story of also legacy at its finest hour, where parents love to see their children be able to follow through and carry on their dreams for the future, and where your children and your children's children continue to live your dreams and be able to express what you've believed in and what you can pass on to future generations and see it alive. It's very interesting that everything that you've been involved in has been high stress, and even you do things sometimes that are high stress to even relax you. I know how that feeling is, is that I also move in a circle of doing a lot, a lot of action, and some of it can be high risk and excitement. But isn't it also a fact that when you started trading stocks right in the beginning, sometimes our best learned lesson is from something that went down terribly in price, something that is completely unexpected that you could lose so much so fast. And it gives you an opportunity right from the beginning to know that a lot of work has to be put into something, that making money or making good decisions shouldn't be taken lightly, that playing a little conservatively, getting little base hits and having a higher winning percentage sometimes is better to get on base than to strike out when you're swinging for a home run. Did your father feel that way? My father liked the hunt, liked the socialization of it, liked to be the best engineer possible. And it's my mom that kept him in check to make sure that we made some money at it if we were going to be in business. Unfortunately, my father failed in business a couple of times. But again, learning those lessons and having a good team where I'd like to think that sometimes that saying the big three was really my mom, my dad, and myself. Of course, my sisters have a different opinion. that They think they're the big three. And so do your daughters. <laughs> and sometimes your daughters think the same thing. But that's a natural feeling. But uh, that closeness, that working together really helped, I think, turn the corner where we could be successful uh, by having each other's back and really uh, being able to help each other brainstorm whatever problems would arise and be able to set the stage to where winning became more frequent than losing. People that play sports or are on teams or, or work, the fact is, is that we've been given choices. And sometimes in order to make better choices, you have to know what the bad choices are. And sometimes, unfortunately, we have to experience it and learn from it and not let it set us back to where we give up. It's that continuum striving to progress to get better is what really is the difference between sometimes winning and losing. It's those that don't give up and keep trying and keep putting in the effort and striving for, as I told my daughter, even as she grew up, is that you have to reach for the stars, but you have to go take that ride and go get it. What's interesting is what motivated him to reach for the stars was his own health condition. This is what's really fascinating is that you were very successful in your business dealings, but then what is anything worth? What is anything that we accomplish? How do we enjoy our lives if we don't really have our health? You even got involved in, uh, in playing some sports and things, but you know, 
that's all part of uh, the game of life and trying to achieve and get better. But it's very devastating that you have a projection of what you want to do with your life and how you want to mature and grow and pass on a legacy. And yet it's almost impossible, almost impossible, if you don't have your health. And to do preventive medicine, my daughter would tell you that if I had a chance to have a a clone of myself, I was also fascinated of not about just helping people's health after they got sick. I wanted to come up with ways, maybe through genetics, of seeing if we could fix our flaws and see if we could come up with prevention so that we can cure ourselves before and fix ourselves before something in our lives could be devastating and take our health away or make us short-lived. So I'm on board with you on that. I think that my mom would say you are what you eat, but exercising and taking care of your body, which is a gift in itself, is something that not only makes you feel better emotionally, but physical appreciation for your body also helps you think better and achieve more as you can do all these things because your whole body is healthy. And it's very, very difficult to achieve and move forward with your life if you don't feel good. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 